0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, hey welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, November 9th, 2021. And this is a special show we're recording with the authors of the World Atlas of Beer, the third edition, uh, Tim Webb and Stephen Beaumont. And what's great is that back in 2012, when the first edition came out, uh, we recorded together with Mr. Bobo from Shimei in the basement of my old Jimmy's number 43. So we've got a lot to catch up on and... Uh, Let's introduce yourselves, Uh, Tim, and then
3: Stephen. Hi, I'm Tim Webb. Uh, I'm a co-author of the World Atlas of Beer, uh, and I do various other things in beer. Um, Too many to mention.
4: (laughs) (laughs) And Stephen? Uh, Stephen Beaumont here. Um, Regular listeners will, I hope, remember me. I think this is my third or fourth time on the show, Uh, been writing about beer for uh, about three decades now, and um, a bunch of books, and 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 I love the New World Atlas. I just I cannot be more proud of a book than this one. And I'll say I have a wonderful copy in front of me. You know, a lot of books
2: now I get on Kindle, I read online, but this is a book that I really wanted to have in print, and it's going to make a great holiday gift if you're a beer fan, or you have a friend who's a beer fan. Um, World Atlas of Beer—it's kind of in the spirit of the old Michael Jackson books with, with great photos and things. But you know, the the one thing now is like, what does it mean to be a beer writer? In in sitting with us are are two of the top beer writers in the world, and I'm just always flattered to to get to talk to them. So why don't we start with Tim and Stephen? Just tell us how you got started writing about beer—you know, the pricey version—and um, another noted book that that um, people should know you. Bye. Tim?
3: Uh, well, I, I began, <laughs> I started off as a beer consumer. In, the, in Europe, one of the big differences between Europe and uh, the Americas is that w- we began to get national groups of beer consumers who were very concerned about what was happening to beer. Uh, we're talking about the last quarter of the 20th century. Um, and I got into it through that and the uh, writing really factual books, pub guides, things like that to, to the UK. And that kind of, that kind of then expanded and um, it reached a point where uh, well, we needed to expand into something else. and so we took a look at various other countries and we took a look at Belgium and through all complicated things. I ended up writing the Good Beer Guide to Belgium, which was uh, ran to about I think I think we did nine editions in total. And I spent about 25 years doing it. And it it was, though I say it myself, it was a unique book that was including every brewery in Belgium, all the beer styles. And to this day, I think it's the best ever cafe guide to the whole of Belgium ever written. Um, And that's where I was at when I met Steve. Uh, Steve, do you want to do your career up to the point we met? And then we can... Talk about certainly, that.
4: certainly. My my pre C version um, is very simple. I, I took a degree in university in political science, and you do three things when you study political science: you you talk a lot, you write a lot, you drink a lot. So it kind of <laughs> set me up well for this uh, this job. Um, I wanted to become a writer, and uh, having no formal writing training, I kind of went okay. Well, what do I do here? And the answer was specialize. So I decided to specialize in writing about beer and um, got myself a column in in the actually the largest circulation daily in in Canada. Um, It was a biweekly column. I ran that for about three years, brought out my first book, and then kind of slowly expanded my horizons from Canada to Canada, the United States, to Canada, the United States, to Europe. And then Tim came knocking on my door with – the idea that we co-authored the world atlas of beer. So all of a sudden, you know, it was the world.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot's changed in whatever it came out nine years ago. Um, I'd rather talk about this book now because I still think that it's quite amazing that you're on your third edition. It, it is this really
3: a, a brand new book because so much has changed? Oh, yeah, I think it... Um, when we did the first edition... Uh, there were about 25 countries that had got an active beer culture. Um, and we, we we were saying when we wrote it that that compare that to Michael Jackson's World Guide to Beer, which was actually the same publishing company and, and in many ways the same format as our book. Uh, what we were saying back then, oh, oh, that's written for a very different world. Uh, because in Michael's world, there were four, um, well, the world that Michael was writing about back in the 70s and 80s, there were four countries that had still got a beer culture going for them. And all of those were fading. Uh, And then there was a few other countries that got a few breweries left over, and that was about it. So back in 2012, we have 25 countries, and there's another dozen or so that are showing a few signs of developing. Now, when we do this edition, uh, we've got 45 countries that have got that are vying for space because they've got such interesting beer cultures. Brewing beers, uh, you know, I, I forget how many countries have now got 100 different breweries. I think it's something like 35. I've got 100 breweries in them. Um, some, Quite a few now have got thousands of breweries in them. Um, and then if you look at the countries that are coming on and developing some beer culture, you're up into three figures. I think we counted 100 and... I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's it's about 110 or something. We've got.
4: No, it was actually um, higher than that, Tim. It was about 125, I think it was.
3: Yeah, hundred. Yeah, hundred twenty five. Yeah, that's it. And 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 that, there you're talking about. You're not talking about countries that they're importing a bit of beer to drink. These are countries that have already got a few brew pubs, a couple of craft breweries, etc. There's not much of the world left where beer, where, where alcohol is legal to drink, um, still for craft beer or beer culture to conquer and steven
4: well it's you know i've actually just been tasked by our publicist uh to kind of get a an idea of exactly how much of the book has been rewritten from the second edition and i I would say it's in excess of 80 percent. i mean we really kind of pulled the whole last edition apart said uh we can't write it like this anymore because there's just too much to cover So we started breaking things down in different ways, um, getting very excited about some young beer scenes that are just developing so incredibly quickly. Uh, And 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 as as we said, you know, there is at least a line or two on um, over 120 countries around the world. Um, You know, some of the things, some of the dramatic changes uh, from the first edition. You know, got countries like uh, Mexico. Which was, you know, basically just getting out the gate. There may be a couple of dozen breweries back in 2012. There are around a thousand breweries in Mexico now, and a lot of them are damn good. So it, it's really neat to go through the book and see how far everything's come since the second and first editions.
2: Do Do you think there's a correlation between countries with good beer and countries that have like a middle class? Because it seems like Mexico is kind of rising all around and Bra- Brazil is rising, at least in their middle class.
4: Well, it's it's kind of tempting to make that kind of uh, generalization. And you're absolutely right about uh, Brazil really got going in craft beer when um, they had their mini economic boom. But then you look south of Brazil to Argentina and Argentina is just in and out of recession like every year. Um, You know, their economy is crumbling and they have, I think, the second largest number of breweries in Latin America. Um, And actually, COVID, we we did update the book um, for this edition that included a lot of stuff about the effects of COVID. And one of the funny things was that it started making Argentinian craft brewers more money because prior to COVID, uh, 80 to 90 percent, of Argentinian craft beer was on draft, and of course, when bars got shut down because of lockdown, they had to pivot into canning their beers, and they found out, hey, you know what? We make more money from cans than we do from draft. So it's actually made the industry as a whole more profitable.
3: Yeah, I think I think over in Europe, the the equivalent of the emerging middle class is the uh, when the wall came down, what thirty years ago now, uh, you got quite. Strongly uh, centralized economies in the east of Europe; these are breaking through now, becoming the, certainly the Central European nations of Poland, Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia, uh, Hungary. Want to don't want to be seen in the same image as the those countries that are still in East Eastern Europe as they see it, like Belarus and Moldova and a few others. Um, but you're seeing both there and in the Baltic states and the southern parts of Eastern Europe. You're seeing craft beer really taking off, and it is kind of mirroring a younger generation coming through who don't have their parents' uh view of this kind of uh, single social group country they are they are much more individualist and 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 part of that I think is uh, is the craft beer scene is coming as part of that changing in the way they see themselves
2: yeah um you know lo- looking. Towards the future and everything, Tim. You had a great quote in your in your intro. Um, it's like looking glass to the future. You said struggle of big beer, constrained trading, versus craft beer triumph of the human spirit. Um, <laughs> you want to talk more about that? It Seems like you guys <laughs> are going in that direction.
3: The human spirit. I will. I mean, it's 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 difficult trying to find words to summarize. The beer scene, the beer scene in some ways, okay, it's it's it's, it's changed a great deal in the last 30, 40 years, um, where it was quite possible in the late 70s through to probably the mid 80s, it was possible to predict that the whole of small scale brewing would disappear from the planet. Um, that is certainly not happening anymore. We've got, I think it's about 30,000 breweries now. Europe, for the first time in a, in a century, has got more than 10,000 breweries, and uh that's fine and but that whole market is is a minority and if you look at the other part of beer which is global Brewers um, they've still grown they've the, the individual companies have grown much bigger the number of companies has shrunk um, they're getting much more monotone um and and so you've got these two parallel, versions of beer going on. But if you look carefully at it, the the very big breweries are slowly but surely losing market share. Uh, The big brands are shrinking a bit in their biggest markets, and they're relying for continuing on there being growth in what for them are relatively new markets like uh, China, India, uh, to a certain extent, South America. Africa is, they think, the big coming one. they haven't got anywhere else to expand into, and they haven't yet figured that big beer is quite boring. It's, it's, you know, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a cheap form of alcohol, if that's what you want, um, but it's quite a tedious product, whereas craft beer is in danger, if anything, of becoming too interesting. Um, and you've got these contrasting worlds, and you've then put them through a mill of problems that include COVID, um, I think you had COVID over in the US, didn't you? Yes. I, I'm sure you did, yeah. But uh, bad joke. But it's, 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 um, you've got COVID, and the next one you got coming up is mitigating climate change. These are massive changes in the world. And I think the challenges facing small breweries and huge global breweries are very different and I'm, I'm not sure the assumption that big will win through is, is necessarily true anymore. Yeah. Well, you guys are getting a little too macro view for me.
2: Um, let's go way back. Like, let, let's say when Michael Jackson wrote his version of this book, um, is it similar to like what the, there was the old, un, you know, before deregulation of telecoms, you had the big phone companies and you didn't have a lot of innovation. But I'm trying to imagine, imagine a world where the only way to get a brewing system would be you'd have to work through a giant company, right? I mean, you yeah. couldn't buy even a homebrew setup somewhere.
3: Yeah. I mean, they, just, for, just as COVID was, the, the, the point at which it struck was it was getting very interesting in Europe because there had started to be a recognition. That the big guys really needed the small guys because the small guys were the people who were making beer sexy again. Um, They were capturing the imagination of of young. I say younger drinkers, people under fifty. The the uh, they were also starting to get in. They were they were becoming part of the hip culture. Um, Beer drinking was one of the things you did for the first time in decades. It was it was a really fashionable thing to do, Um, and top quality products. So, the big guys need the small guys. The small guys, on the other hand, let's be realistic, they don't get the share of the market that they should do if things were done purely and simply uh, on the basis of quality. Uh, if the best products won the market, then craft brewing will be doing even better than it is now by quite a long way. But they were realizing they had to talk to the big guys and kind of negotiate with the big guys and somehow get a presence within the big guys' world. And that was starting to get really interesting in Europe towards the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. Then came COVID, and it's just like slam dunk reset. Let's start all over again. And so we've now got some really interesting things happening as to what's going to happen in the future, uh, coinciding with everybody talking about changes of climate change. So it's sure, um, Tim. On, on just back to that quote. Use a term I, I love because you're. So you, where are you in UK in Bristol? Uh, I was in Bristol when I wrote the book. I've now moved about an hour down into the rural southwest. So I'm in the middle of nowhere here. Um, I have my next-door neighbor, and the nearest house beyond that is about half a mile away.
2: Yeah. We use the term constrained trading. Now, translate that for us to American. Because you you use trading (laughs) as a a different
3: term. Yeah, I mean, if I explain the system in the UK, but there are equivalents of this in most major European countries. But the system in the UK is that roughly 45% of the beer is sold in bars, hotels, restaurants, and about 55% is sold in shops, supermarkets, etc. And in different ways, in different parts of the business, uh, Large breweries essentially gain control over huge parts of the retail industry, be it shops or be it bars. And there's lots of different ways in which this is done. And uh, some of it is seen as being decent business practice. Some of it is pretty dubious. Um but the thing is, it's all joined up, and it's, um, it's make, it makes it very difficult in reality for a new small brewery that sets up, or even one that's quite well-established and a decent size, to actually get their beers into local supermarkets, uh, many local pubs, uh, because they haven't got the, the freedom to sell in there through one of a thousand different ways. So constraints on trade happen in subtle and clever ways, but are actually massive it's something that 85 percent of the market remains with uh, just five companies um, at least four of whom are doing the same as each other
2: yeah Hey, I'm gonna jump to Steven Stephen some more of your backstory um, on your website it says drink tourism you mentioned an actor background as an actor and working uh, on cruise <laughs> ships
4: yeah well you know there th- that goes back to what you were saying. Earlier on, Jimmy, is is when you're when you're a beer writer today, you have to explore all avenues. Um, Unfortunately, uh, the printed word is, you know, the entire time I've been uh, a writer, it has been in steady decline in terms of its value. Uh, I often get paid less now for an article than I did 30 years ago. So you know you do what you can. I've 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 done a lot of speaking engagements. Um, I, I never was a working actor, but I trained as an actor, which I think helps me um, in doing some of these presentations and shows and stuff. Um, actually, very excited about next week going to Quebec City and presenting to a live conference for the first time in two years. So that'll be something a little different. Yeah, great. What's that, Stephen? It's the Association of Quebec Microbrewers. Their conference. And, uh, they've asked me to come along and I said, absolutely. I get to get on a plane and go someplace different. hundred percent.
2: Stephen. the last episode you are on earlier this year, it, you were stuck in Toronto and, and it was one of the, one of my favorite episodes of the year where you, you just had your Toronto friends on.
4: Yeah. And, you know, this is, you, you try to see the bright side of everything, right? Um, in a typical pre-COVID year, I'm on the road traveling probably three to four months in total. Um, during COVID, obviously, that's been completely curtailed. And what that's made me do is kind of look in my own backyard. And uh, I've I've been able to really see, you know, with very, very clear eyes and in a way kind of looking at the whole thing new all over again, how far... Uh, both Toronto and Canadian beer has come. Um, I truly think that the city I live in, Toronto, Ontario, is now one of the top-ranked beer cities in the world. Um, And I I cannot be more impressed by the advances that Canadian beer has made as well in terms of general quality and your ability to find great beer almost anywhere you go in this vast country.
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really great. I'm going to quiz you guys about the book now, okay? (laughs) We're going to make this sexy, all right? So let's get sexy, guys. Quiz you on the book. Um, For Stephen and Tim, what would be your beer to define the summer of 2021? Because for many of us, COVID restrictions were lifting. People were doing things again. What's a beer, either the specific beer or beer style, that you to you resonates with the summer of
4: twenty twenty one. Well, for me, beer is it so, so? You carry on, Steve. I'm... Okay, I, I've got it. I've just got to say, Svedny Lesak, what we would generally call Czech style pilsner. Um, I especially in my home market, um, the, there's been this huge explosion of Czech influence in breweries around here. Um, and it it's really been lovely this summer drinking uh, just one great lager uh, pilsner style after another. Um, so that that would be the the style that I'd say that defines 2021 20, 20, to me. Oh, that's a, that's a good one. I
2: was gonna I was gonna say also Italian Italian style pils. Um, I know you guys covered a little bit of Italy, and you had birrificio the Tipo pils. Does does Tim? Does anyone want to talk about? How that beer seems like Tepo Pills influence a lot of at least
3: American brewers this year. I, th- I think there's a general there's a general feeling that 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 blonde lagers have got to got to reach their potential in the craft beer sector. Um, in the UK, we 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 got, we have a second problem. In the UK. We didn't just have COVID. We have this thing called Brexit, where the UK voted to leave the European Union and have a bash at being a private economy again. Um, which hasn't gone that well. Uh, Because one of the the things that that, um, has happened is that the import-export of beer across the borders has been really slowed down uh, because they haven't got the paperwork sorted. So for us over here, we've been uh, focused very much on drinking beers from the UK because it's so much more difficult to access foreign beers than it was. And lager have hit us as well. So, but it's trying to get it's British brewers trying to brew a lager from somewhere um and there are some British brewers breaking with all traditions by by doing decoction mashing and things like this Uh, and they're importing particular types of hops that are typical to this lager or that lager so yeah we've had a summer of lager and Italian lager hadn't really got a grip in the UK before this, and it hasn't. I can't honestly say it's gone now, but there's lots of companies imitating Bavarian and Bohemian lager, some with some success.
4: Yeah. Well, JB, that the style that you refer to, um, which I touch on in the Italian section of the book, the Italian style pilsner. The question that I raise is: Is it a style? Um, I mean, Birrificio Italiano was certainly not the first brewery to dry hop a Pilsner. Um, I'm quite positive that's happened before them. Um, but when Matt Brindelson over in Firestone Walker kind of caught hold of it and said, Tipo Pils is my inspiration for Pivo, that was when the American imagination caught hold of this Italian style Pilsner. It's it's much like the Belgian style IPA, which was never a style in Belgium until the Americans decided it was a style, and then <laughs> and then Belgian brewers started saying, "Oh yeah, this is our Bel- this is our IPA." Um, the the Italian pilsner was never a style in Italy until it became a style in the United States. Uh, so the question is. It, does that make it a style when it wasn't really a style in his home country? So I don't know. I leave that one hanging in the book. I don't to try to answer that question.
2: <laughs> well, the, we we I like the Italian style pills, and I, a lot of brewers got creative this year with uh, giving it Italian and pizza names. Uh, it was pretty fun. Hey, back to the book, um, Beer History. Um, what the hell, this great intro section, what the hell is ancient craft meets modern science? <laughs>
4: I think I think, yeah, I think the was working in front of me. Come um, on, I, yeah, you've
3: got the advantage of me. I I, I thought I, 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 yeah, I haven't got the book in front of me. That seems does that was that in the UK section or was oh no that was in the yeah the intro, um, yeah, you a lot of things. This was in the 19th century, I think we're talking about when when a lot of things changed regarding the technical understanding of beer and technical advances in brewery equipment and all the rest of it and you and and you had i think you had the golden age of beer creation was from about 1870 shall we say maybe a little bit earlier through to the beginning of the 20th century this is a few decades where you'd got the best of old-fashioned ingredients and um pretty straightforward business methods and you'd also you got Machinery developing at a great rate, um, and 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 that was a that was a real change in how beer was looked at. The history of beer is, you could either do look at it really closely, or you could just stay up there in the clouds and look down on it. Um, if you do the latter, you see that most beers were sort of brown and uh, made in small quantities. Uh, and sold from the brewery, uh, whatever, until about really, Porter was the first organized beer. Um, Porter was the first f- f- uh, beer that became extremely popular originally in the UK, but that spread quite a lot around the world. Then came Pale Ales, which, which became fashionable because of changes in technology and um, changes in uh, a lot of it, a lot of changes in infrastructure where it was possible to ship hops a lot easier. Uh, and ship completed beer a lot easier. Uh, and then, of course, you got the third wave, which was the um, lagers in the 20th century. But I think, I think that's what we were talking about. You're not going to tell me I've just gone on <laughs> about something. That was easier. a good one.
2: Oh, All right. I, I and think, then another I one. I... Um,
3: who is a separate off, off
2: book, since we're talking England, who is okay. the notorious blogger who researches and posts 19th century brewery recipes?
4: That would be Ron Pattinson.
3: Yeah, uh, unquestionably.
4: Uh Ron Ron is is a wonderful guy. He lives in the Netherlands. Um, he's a, a British expat. He he's he's done the he's very popular among homebrewers because he takes these ancient recipes and makes them homebrewer friendly. Um and, and he loves nothing more than sitting in a brewery's archives and pouring over all these old recipe books and files and journals. And that's his idea of a great vacation. Um, and God bless him for it. <laughs>
3: yeah, the world needs Ron Pattinson. Somebody's got to sit there and dig deep into old records um, and, and with a passion that will ensure that they are the, the key parts are recreated honestly and straightforwardly.
2: <clears throat> I, I knew him from when uh, Dan Paquette was in the States, Pretty Things. You know him now as St. Mark's of the Desert uh, up in northern England, but he used to make a lot of Ron Pattinson uh, recipes. And I, I, also back to your beer history in your book, um, you guys mentioned using the letter K to, um, d- yeah,
3: to describe
2: it. a certain kind of beer. W- yeah. What was the letter K about? And then I'll tell you the, the beer that Dan Paquette made. Well, using
3: the case. There, there, there is the, um, the old system of Xs. A lot of people have heard of these where the, the beer was a 1X or a 2X or a 3X. Basically, is a measure of strength. The second dimension for beers for, quite, for for a couple of hundred years was how long they were kept for at the brewery. How long was the brewery conditioning usually in oak? Um, and that was also uh, designated in the same way. It was 1K, 2Ks or 3Ks. And the K stood for keeping. Uh, quite as simple as that. So a 3k beer would be probably in the brewery for eighteen months, two years. Um, 2k would be a year or more, and a k would be six months, but not the full year, um, approximately. So yeah, that was the case. That was the k the k system.
2: Yeah, I never forget. Based on a Ron Pat in the recipe, um, Dan Paquette made it was three ks, and it was like an eight percent. It was dark. It was very hoppy. Um, I guess it was supposed to be like a late nineteenth-century three K beer. Um,
1: <laughs>
3: yeah. Um, so well, they were still cool. they were they were still making three K beers uh, at the beginning of the twentieth century in the UK. Um, there was a change in the law. Uh, a lot. A lot of the thing about development of beers, uh, it, it frequently comes after there is a change in the law, and it's often an unintended consequence. So. In the UK, up until about 1870, loads of beers were kept at the brewery and brewery conditioned in oak for quite a long time. It was a routine thing to do. Um, But then they changed the taxation system on beer. And instead of being taxed, uh, one of the key parts was instead of being taxed uh, when when the beer left the brewery, uh, you were taxed on, well, within a week or two of it completing its fermentation. So to keep a beer hanging around for two or three years uh, was was all of a sudden a very very costly thing to do because you would already paid the tax on it. Um, so that that was the real reason that these um, long matured beers disappeared. It wasn't anything to do really with. It wasn't primarily to do with changes in taste. Uh, it was that the prices went up both for the brewers and also for the customers. Went up
4: massively. Uh, Jimmy, if I if I could interject just for a quick second here, Jimmy. Um, because you're you're talking a bit about the history section of the book. And um, this is part of of what we had to really rework the book um, because, let's face it, every beer book has the same stuff. It's like, here's the history of beer. Here's how beer is made. Here's what beer styles are about, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the challenges that Tim and I face every time we bring out an edition of this is to make it fresh and make it not the same old thing that you can see in you know, dozens of other beer books, so, we were trying to take a different tact on these things and really kind of look at the history in a different way. look at the process of brewing beer in a different way start to you know look add add. Perspective from what a brewer would think, looking at these subjects, and that—that's where you get something a little different in the—in the, at the start of the third edition of World Atlas. It was inspired a bit by my late father, who, of course, I gave him copies of all of my books, and uh, I remember him sitting down with me one day and saying, "You know, Steve, all of your books seem to start the same way. Do you really need all that?" And I said, "You know what? <laughs> you, you got a point there, Dad." <laughs> So we, we started to th- kind of think about how can we make this a little more interesting, a little different?
2: No, I, I love the stories. And, you know, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right.
1: Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arati Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it, from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and it was, they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes, and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children, about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love.
4: Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you.
1: Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Join us and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. Food radio and over 12 years of uh, amazing podcasts about food and drink and so much more. HeritageRadioNetwork.org. All right. So Stephen and Tim, uh, the World Atlas of Beer, third edition. This is a fascinating show, and I know we can just keep talking. So um, for you guys, what was the biggest challenge of writing this book? I mean, you, you, and first of all, Tim, you're in England, and Stephen, you're in you know, Toronto uh is that how writers work now do do you need like hang out in the pub together
3: and well no we 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 kind of we we met uh, we we, we've known each other since 1996 and uh, my oldest daughter lives in Ontario so I have a I have a family link there and she was uh she was quite young then I'd been over to see her and I was hanging around for a couple of days in Toronto and I go into this bar and I start talking to the manager and blah 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 blah, and he said, "Oh, you need to meet Steve Beaumont. He writes the Canadian Beer Guide." So, and that's how we first met. Uh, so that that's the reason we work. But um, actually, if you're if you if you're free, if you've been around for a fair time in the beer world as a writer, you you we get a lot of the same opportunities to network around the world, and we kind of meet up more than would be reasonable. Though so having said that. I haven't seen Steve for two years. Um, I think that's the first time since 1996 I haven't seen Steve since uh, two years. But it's, um, yeah, it's kind of, uh, yeah, I and we have the internet now. And we know, between us, we know all the people. We really want to be talking about these countries because we know, well, we think we know they're the best in their countries. And it's network, network, network.
2: Yeah, no, you know, you guys are super great. Uh, okay, let's go through some of your notes you each picked a beer that you wanted to recommend. Uh, Stephen, you picked a beer to guard. You want to tell us about that one?
4: Yeah, this one, um, it was actually a toss-up because uh, it was a, it's a beer I've never had before, and I'm, I'm quite enjoying it. Um, it was delivered to me by a brewing co- company called Fenland Falls Brewing, which is a, a town about two and a half hours northeast of Toronto. And uh, oh. oddly enough, they, they delivered me some of their special um, – They call it the Brewer's Reserve Series. Um, And at the the time they delivered them to me, they were about five or six months old, which I thought was a really strange time of the life of a beer to give out samples of it. Um, But in the case of the beer de garde, it's worked quite well for it. Um, It's really conditioned quite nicely. There's that little bit of note of oxidization, which I think befits the style quite nicely. Um, And I, I, I do enjoy this style. I don't think it gets nearly the the credit it deserves. It uh, It's one of those beers that when it's, it's brewed well and it's fresh, it's absolutely delightful. When it's brewed well and it's allowed to age a bit, it becomes effectively a whole different beer. So uh, it, it's always fun to, to see one of these and and be able to give it a try when it's had a little time behind it.
2: And it may ask, because I'm just saying, Beer de Guard from Ontario's Fenelon Falls Brewing.
4: What's the color of it? It's, uh, it's got a bit of that kind of coppery tinge to it that you get with a beer that has some oxidization. Um, but it, it's, in the main, it's a medium gold color. Um, it's, for a beer uh, that's been around for a little while, it's holding its foam quite nicely. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's, it's quite pleasant in the glass. Oh, great. And you mentioned you had a backup beer from uh, another local brewery yeah you were you were mentioning um early on like the beers of of the summer uh well for me, the beer of autumn every single year is uh fest beers Merritsens however you wanna call them um and i I will buy anything that says Merritzin Oktoberfest beer on the on the label, and i just i round them all up um as soon as they start coming out in the fall. And I, so I've I've just got a few left, and uh, this one is Anderson Brewing Company, which is out in London, Ontario, um, to the no- northwest oh, nice. of here, actually southwest of here, um, and it's uh, it, it's kind of an old school Mertzen, um, as opposed to kind of the, the new style, which is more honeyish and brighter golden color. Uh, so it's wow. got some some earthiness to it.
2: And Steve, I, I know that um the U.S. opened its borders, so. I know that people from Canada can come to the U S can people from
4: U S like Buffalo, New York, uh, cross over to Canada. Yes, you do. I, you do need to provide proof of vaccination, 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 but you can cross the border now. Yes.
2: little local color. It must be, I can't imagine being one of those kind of borders. You know, there's places in New York called thousand islands where you've got hundreds of miles of border with Canada and, uh, You've been cut off. It's crazy, but Tim, your um, your beer, actually, the beer you're talking about, I think, was also in the original Michael Jackson book.
3: Yeah, I think it was. It's Traquair House Ale, which um, every one of the common themes of all three editions of the Atlas is is that I developed my belief that um, Traquair House uh, Brewery in Scotland was should should be claimed as the first craft brewery. Um, in the sense that of the new wave breweries that began after the great lull in the twentieth century, Trequair started in nineteen sixty-five with the the laird of trequair who was uh, kind of it's, it's a Scottish word that basically means lord, but lord of the manor. Um, he returned home because his father died, and he took on the uh, the great estate of trequair or the the, well, the, the decent-sized. Estate of Traquair and its house, and when he did so, he discovered a brewery there. And uh, one of his, uh, I I believe, they actually shared an apartment at university. Uh, There was a guy called um, Sandy Hunter, who was the head brewer at Bellhaven Brewery, which was his family brewery, and together they they reopened a a brewery in the outhouse in um, Traquair House, Uh, and. In order to brew a Scotch ale, now I should I should interject
4: here, Tim. It's not an outhouse in the North American term of the word outhouse. (laughs) Thank you, Stephen. Very important. Should I wash my hands
3: before or afterwards? (laughs) No, no, no. Oh, right. Okay. If I said stable, would that be a stable block? Does that translate? Much better. Stable, yeah. Maybe horses. uh, Well, it would have horses in it if it didn't have a brewery in it. Um, it's it's um it's an extraordinary little brewery that and it's it's a it's a beautiful rebuild it's not that it was you know closed for 12 months it was closed for ages um it's the only brewery in britain where all the fermentation continues to occur in wood um and they recreated scotch ale this one's 7.2 percent alcohol uh probably lower end of scotch ale <clears throat> it's got a because of its, I think it's because of its fermentation in wood. It's got a slight, the um, uh, very slight tinge of acidity to it, oh, very subtle, but it works because otherwise this is a deep, dark, um, caramel-dominated beer. Uh, but I thought I should do it because it's it's kind of historic, and they don't they don't put on you. Know, it's not like you go down the drive into the beautiful trevor House ale. Eh, there's uh, trevor tr- 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 House, and there's um. A big banner saying we were the first craft brewery in the world. <laughs> uh, I'm the only one who says it. But uh, I actually managed to stay there. It's a beautiful, enormous building. And from the start, first part was the 13th century. And it, the last bit to be built was, I think, it was 18th century. And I, you, they have three letting rooms. And I stayed there in the summer uh, overnight. Um, I have to say, I, I bought the beer at full price as well. They don't pay um, me. They don't call the
2: writers. Yeah, exactly. Going back to the original, the Michael Jackson book, now you're making me think about there was some brewery that may have been serving cask ale in one of his 80s from 1980s or 90s edition, and it was a place where they said that you could only get there when the tide was a certain level and that you might get stuck there overnight. And there was a picture of just these old guys sitting there drinking beer there are somewhere in england do you know
3: what place this was i'm um there are a few places like that i'm trying to link one with a brewery in my head we have we have um i know there was a hugely evocative picture of a guy drinking adnams beer Um, adnams yeah it's it's that was actually the, the pub in those days they fixed the problem, unfortunately, but the, the pub in those days uh, was sometimes cut off from the town, and you could be stuck there overnight. Um, the town council got a bit annoyed at that. They they, they eventually fixed the road, so it's it's, um, <laughs> it's gone up, Mark. Well, that's think.
2: the spirit. When I'm thinking, talking to you about England, I keep thinking, "Wow, you've got the pub where so the road wouldn't flood." Is that
3: what it was? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it was. It was just a badly built road. It, it was sunk over the years, and they they, they they were too mean to sort of bank it up again. But now <coughs> Southwold, where Adler's Brewery is and where this pub is, is actually the town where uh, the, the novel David Copperfield was based. And um, so it's got a lot of history, and it's now a very popular town with upmarket tourism, some superb restaurants and pubs. Um, it's really quite classy. And uh, so, yeah. They, they didn't didn't think that stranding tourists even in a pub overnight was good for <laughs> well, now people would pay extra for that
2: yeah. I think. <laughs> hey steven so for you let's talk about the new world of beer because um w- w- what's a country or a place that you want to call out um that's in the book
4: oh definitely I, i've said this time and again um I think one of the most exciting beer scenes in the world today is Mexico. Um, Just phenomenal creativity going on there. Um, And, you know, of course, Tim and I, one of the things that we have to do for the World Atlas of Beer, because it's a big world out there and getting bigger where beer is concerned all the time, uh, is we do have to divvy things up. And being based in the UK, uh, Tim does most of Europe, and being based in Canada. I do all of the Americas. Um, so some of the most exciting places for me are in Latin America, uh, just because of. I, I have an essay in this in this edition of the of the atlas. This, I think it's t- titled "Brewing the Latin American Way," and what it comes down to is is Latin Americans have a different way of looking at brewing, um, especially when it comes to flavoring beers with other ingredients. Um, and the best way I could put it is that if a North American um, is making a flavored stout, for example, they think of making a beer and then flavoring it with cherries or chocolate or coffee or what have you. Whereas the Latin American approach is to look at that flavoring ingredient as just as important as all the other ingredients. So they, they, they're they more cooks than they are brewers in that sense. Um, and the closest you can get to it is, is the way the Belgians look at their fruit beers. Um, it really, it comes along the same lines and that's resulted in, you know, things like the Mexican Imperial stout, uh, which, you know, I, it's, it's become very popular in the U S to do mole style stouts, but the Mexicans frankly do it a lot better, uh, because they know the flavors and they brew it with this kind of approach in mind. And the Catarina Sours down in Brazil, which are Mm -hmm. basically kettle sours made with fruit. But the way that they make them, it just it takes away that kind of one note kettle sour style point and gives it a rounder, more complete um, character. Uh, So it, it, it really is exciting for me. And I'm looking so much forward to getting back down into Latin America again.
2: Oh, man, I might, I might meet you in Mexico. It's on my list. Um, what what about, like, we, we mentioned this Italian-style lager, and you didn't really say it was a style. What about Mexican lager? I mean, that's also become very trendy in the States.
4: Yeah, I don't know what that is. Um, you know, you talk to some brewers, and it's basically their take on the Mexican take on Vienna lager. So if you think of the Dos Equis Amber, and kind of, it's it's this lighter amberish beer has some adjunct in it, and some people will say that's a Mexican style lager. Um, other people say, oh no, a Mexican style lager is an adjunct lager that's brewed to be really light, but not light in alcohol. So it's a five percent beer that has a very light character. Um, I think the whole style just does a complete disservice to Mexico. Because there's so much, as I said, there's so much exciting beer coming out of Mexico today. And to have that country saddled with the idea of Mexican-style lagers, which, let's face it, most of them are pretty insipid. And they're made for people who want to drink Budweiser but want to do it with a craft beer label.
2: And, you know, yeah, no, I I mean, you. I'm lucky. I've been, I've been getting to know more of the like, artisanal mezcal makers and things from Oaxaca. And I know the culture there. There's even some uh, rising wine, wine regions um, and, and chefs and everything. Oh, yeah, I think Mexico is like fertile ground. Um, now let's go back to uh, Tim. When you said when part of doing the Good Beer Guide to Belgium is that you may have had the most comprehensive list of Belgian cafes. Um, in the book, I like that you guys near the end, you both – picked your top 10 beer destinations. Why don't you each tell me about one? And I just want to say that I love that you guys are talking about places to drink in addition to what to drink.
3: Yeah. Well, it's always difficult. I mean, um, <clears throat> I wish I had the book in front of me and I could remind myself where I said. <laughs> uh, I can remember Steve's choices because they're really good. Well,
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're talking about
3: Steve. <laughs> Oh well, the I'll do one of Steve's, the Bar in Edinburgh, um, which uh, is is a fabulous bar. It's it's actually not been a bar for anywhere long as anywhere as long as it looks like, but it looks like it's always been there. It's this long, deep, um, oak panelled and mirrored bar uh, with which just has shed loads of beers and shed loads of whiskies. And it has very little, if any, background music. It's just there for conversation, and it's all primarily about beer, and and that's a great place to be. Um, but I can't remember my own choices. You'd have to remind me.
4: <laughs> well, I, I, I can tell I can tell you a little bit about Tim's choices because I do okay. have the book in front of me. Um, <laughs> couple of them I've been to, uh, of course, Bruges Beertje in, in Bruges course, in yeah. Belgium, uh, classic. Absolute classic bar. Um, he actually picks JDCL in Montreal, um, which I I didn't have room for in my list, but uh, Tim got it in there. Um, Mac Maceseiete Venutiafa, aka the Football Club Pub down in Rome. Yeah, um, which is a terrific. That's bar. one that I've oh, never
3: heard of. Oh, it's. Oh, wait, um, it. there's there's a little street uh so they've actually got two bars um i I went for the one that didn't do much in the way of food it's really quite a grungy bar um and uh but but it's beer selection is uh, a mix of very few obvious beers and lots of really elite but not particularly interested in selling them at 30 dollars a bottle it's all sort of Fairly routinely priced uh, and a very cosmopolitan crowd. but um, And it's just completely incongruous for people's people imagining drinking in Italy. It's usually qu- quite a suave, sophisticated kind of a thing. And this is the exact opposite. This is this is a Roman grunge bar. Um, and if you want something a little bit more sophisticated, you go up the way to a, a, a bar, which I can't remember the name of, 100 meters up the way, where they do some food and have an almost equally good beer list. So great, great place to do things. It's at. called
4: beer and food. That's the one. Beer and food. Yeah. spelled F-U-D. Beer and food. Yeah. And beer, beer is spelled B I R. Yeah. And the um, the the picture that accompanies Tim's list uh, is of uh, the football pub, and it it really does capture the image of it because it's these blokes standing out front of it uh there's graffiti on the walls everyone's just standing around in shorts and jeans and t-shirts and baseball caps <laughs> it's not exactly your you know sophisticated roman bar well that's
2: it it's, it's the modern mo- the modern uh italy you know
3: yeah but if you went in, if you went in there really snappily dressed they wouldn't look twice at you you'd be fine <laughs>
2: <laughs> Well, man this has been great i got the book in front of me and uh, i can't even find Somehow, if there's so many things in this book, um, I, I do like the idea yeah, that you, you didn't focus so much on brewing technique, and I, I think you're right about when, when Michael Jackson first wrote his book, the idea of just showing people how to brew was probably uh, revolutionary. Um, I think Pete Brown is, was saying a few years ago that most people still just think that beer is a chemical. I mean, it, are people yeah. talking to you about ingredients more than they used to?
3: Oh, I think I've just I've just completed a, a scripting a six part series on how beer is made, which is basically aimed at interested UK consumers. Um, and I was thinking at when I started, how on earth do you string that out for six episodes of twenty five minutes? <laughs> um, and but. And by the time we finished, oh, my God, we're clipping even basics away. Uh, but, but getting a huge understanding of how different brewers are now looking at even basic processes in complete, completely different ways. Um, even the simplest thing can be done in 12 fundamentally different ways. Um, to the extent that you know, we're going to have to have another one of these world councils on how to define what a beer is, what constitutes a beer. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's it's going to get a lot more complicated before it gets simpler even though i i have to say i would predict in the future that beer will get a little bit less complicated but hey
4: i think the other thing we have to remember um is that there are several levels of beer consumer i mean there are there are the beer cognoscenti the people who know about beer and and hunt for beers and 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 then there are people and this is the vast majority of beer drinkers who still have no idea what a hop is like yeah they honestly do not know. They know that beer is hops and barley and water and yeast, and that's fine. But, you know, you've got these breweries that are bringing out Citra Madness and Centennial this and Azteca that and all this kind of stuff, um, and the average consumer is lost because they, have, they don't know what these mean um so there's there's this increasing gap between the people who do know and the people who don't care to know and they're just confused when you try to assume that they do know
2: yeah well i mean i i think that uh, you know there's places i go and you know there's still the conversation someone likes ipa and someone likes lager and someone's going to drink Guinness stout um but i guess that's been that's been progress if if that's the average
3: the average drinker right yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think, uh, I, I mean, when I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm even older than Steve, and uh, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when beer was exceedingly dull and there were no alternatives to drinking industrial lager or some pretty lightweight ales, many of which were nondescript, um, and there was no choice. I think at least now people, they have the opportunity to reject a much wider range of tastes and flavors if they really want to stick with dull beer. And uh, and that is a huge, that is huge progress. And you do, in, even in UK supermarkets, you're seeing a range of beer styles, even if they're not routinely stocking the really interesting ones, there is, it's, it's it's spreading.
2: Yeah, you're, you're gonna go to a, a decent restaurant, not in a major city, and you're gonna have a choice of a few different styles. Like right now in front of me, I'm spending more time in the Boston area and there's a brewery called Wormtown, which has been dedicated to buying uh, local craft malt. And I'm drinking a double IPA called Diner Car, uh, but it drinks doesn't drink like a double IPA, you know? It's got no. great flavor and mouthfeel. So, wow, this was really cool, guys. <laughs> um, like I said, it was 2012. We were in person, talked about the World Atlas Beer first edition, and now we're on the third edition. And it really is a brand-new book. Um I'm going to make sure that people I know, if you like beer, get this for a holiday gift. Um, this is really the the book we've been waiting for. And and Stephen, we really were waiting for this book, weren't we?
4: Yes. Um, this is another effect of COVID. Uh, we we re- released this book in the UK last year. Um, but because of COVID, it never got published in North America. And so the the upside of that is that it allowed Tim and I to hunker down in the spring and update for even further. So I, I refer to this as, as edition 3.1, the North American <laughs> edition. <laughs> so this because one, the North American
2: edition, is the current edition. Yeah, and, I have it is. It and we're going to post a photo of the cover because it's so beautiful. The
3: World Atlas of Beer. Uh, yeah, we, we finished in the UK edition just at the last... Three or four weeks of finishing off the manuscript, neither Steve nor I could leave our homes, um, which, we, which uh, you know, the time when you're writing a world atlas, it's, it just feels wrong. Um, but then for the, the US edition, they therefore understandably postponed it. And then in the spring, we had to, as Steve said, we had to rewrite it for post COVID. But in both cases, we had to make predictions of what we thought would happen in the very early stages of something changing. I, I thought that the assumptions we made about the UK edition were actually remarkably robust. We have changed quite a lot, and we have updated things and changed things based on what happened in the first lockdown, etc., and what we can predict for the future. But the great thing is that the craft beer sector has weathered, thus far, has weathered COVID really well. It's learned a lot of lessons. It's robust. Um, and I don't. We, we all thought it was in danger of disappearing, but once again, it failed to do so.
2: No, let's not talk like that because <laughs> we're like I said, whether they're, they're lager fans or IPA fans or stout fans, they're all drinking craft beer. So, yeah. um, guys, thanks so much, Stephen. Once again, uh, yeah, I think we were talking um, earlier this year about doing this show, and instead we did the Toronto Lockdown Show, which was a really great one. So, thank you. Um, big yeah, shout really out to everybody too. again, World Atlas of Beer, third edition. Put it on your shopping list if you're a fan of beer or you have friends who are fans of beer. Um, I, I love this book, and I'm going to keep looking at it. Um, we could talk m- more about this, but we'll catch up with you guys next time. Uh, big shout-out to our engineer, Armin Spengen. Thanks so much for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network, Tim Webb and Stephen Beaumont. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right, guys. Woo! Thank you. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by CineCast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com/slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization